let's talk about what it means to walk with God as Christian ministers. If I can ask you to turn your Bibles to Psalm 63, you should have a sheet in front of you uh, with a basic outline of our time together this morning. As you turn there, I want you to think about in the psalm how we see the psalmist David move from personal worship to, to public worship in the sanctuary back to, back to private worship. This is a man who is following hard after God. O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Brothers, we need a renaissance of pastoral piety in our day. Let us pray to that end. Let us pray. Father, we do pray that you would work in and through your word this morning, that you would bless this time together as brothers who who together want to walk with you. And Lord, would you you impress some things upon our hearts? Would you drive us to Christ, to behold his glory and majesty and beauty? That if some of us in this room are not walking with you, that even in these moments, you would capture our affections once again and draw us to yourself. And give us a heart for you above all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I love this verse 8. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. It, it reminds me of uh, that wonderful illustration of the father walking with his small uh, child across the street. And what do you tell your child when you're walking with him across the street? You say, hold on tight, Right? And he's clinging to your hand, but even if your child wanted to get away from you, he wouldn't be able to because you've got him so tightly. The Lord's right hand upholds us, and yet he calls us to cling tightly to him. He calls us to walk with God. Look with me at this first statement on your notes there. I actually want us to read this uh, together as a fellowship, beginning with the highest. The highest priority of every Christian minister is to possess and nurture a vibrant walk with God. 
whether young or old, newly ordained or seasoned with decades of service, the minister's sincere, experiential, and personal relationship with God is essential to a lifetime of faithful and fruitful ministry. Something we've all been taught, isn't it? Something we all believe. Something we've all learned. Nevertheless, due to the busyness and the challenges and the pressures of life and ministry, it's something that we easily forget. It's something that we so often neglect if we are not careful. Thus, for the purpose of this subject for this morning, something that has been burning on my heart for well over a year, even as I myself, in the midst of uh, middle age, having turned 46 years old, in the midst of uh, ministry, where now I'm, I'm moving towards 20 years of ministry, if we are all honest with ourselves, we recognize that there is the temptation to not be careful over one's own soul. And then, as we will speak of in a few moments, the, the terrible things that we've seen happen to friends and colleagues in ministry because we've not taken seriously the call to walk with God. I want to remind us of the importance of the minister's walk with God this morning. That the Christian minister is a, is a Christian first and then a minister. He is a child of God first and then a pastor. He is a disciple first and then a disciple maker. A sheep first and then a shepherd. A member of God's household first and then a steward of the ministry. A citizen of God's kingdom first and then an ambassador. He is called to walk with God first before he leads and instructs others to do the same. Dear brothers, fellow pastors, future pastors, please get this. The Lord wants our hearts and our lives before he wants our ministry and our service. The Lord wants our hearts and our lives before he wants our ministry and our service. Ministry and service divorced from a sincere walk with God, it not only runs against the grain of Scripture, it sows the poisonous seeds of duplicity in our hearts, seeds which eventually grow into an assorted display of ministerial infidelities. The Lord wants his ministers' hearts. Brothers, the Lord wants our hearts. He wants us to walk with him in sincere piety before we step into our pulpits or up to our lecterns. He wants us to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Above all else in this world, the inability to do that perfectly does not negate the command or excuse us from living in such a way, striving for this in God's grace and strength. God wants to be our treasure. God wants to be our treasure because he knows that where our treasure is, there will be our hearts also. He wants us to offer up our hearts to him 
without condition, without qualification. Can you remember a day when you did that? Can you remember the day that you did that, offered him up your heart without condition, without qualification? The French reformer, John Calvin, he models this uh, concept for us in a letter to William Farrell in August of 1541. It was in a letter in response to Farrell's zealous encouragement to return to Geneva for the cause of Reformation after having been banished for three years to, uh, to Strasbourg by the Genevan City Council. You know the story. The City Council wanted Calvin back, and Farrell knew that Calvin was reluctant to return and would be quite happy to stay in the more peaceful Strasbourg with Martin Bootser. Calvin wrote to a friend, quote, I would prefer a hundred other deaths to this cross on which I would have to die a thousand times each day. (laughs) Even so, Calvin later wrote to Pharrell, but when I remember that I am not my own, I offer up my heart. I offer up my heart, presented as a sacrifice to the Lord. When I remember that I am not my own, I offer up my heart, presented as a sacrifice to the Lord. Calvin's seal and motto, portrayed as an open hand, holding a heart as if offering it up to God, sums it up so beautifully. My heart I offer to you, O Lord, promptly and sincerely. Calvin's seal expresses an earnest prayer that his heart, that the the core of his very being and existence would be the Lord's. Not, now please listen to this, reformed brethren. Not abstractly, not theoretically or generally, but promptly and sincerely and evidenced in a humble walk. With God, this beautiful expression of reformed piety was also set forth by Ursinus in his 1563 Heidelberg Catechism in question and answer one. You, you know it well. What is your only comfort in life and in death that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ? He has fully paid for all of my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life. Now listen, and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Dear brothers, as pastors, we know that walking closely with God and offering up our hearts to him promptly and sincerely are essential to faithful ministry. But what we know and how we live, sadly, are often two different things. They don't match up. We know our personal relationship with the Lord is of highest importance. We know how critical it is for us to keep watch over our own souls so that we are not led astray by the very temptations that we warn our people about. We know how critical it is to daily sit at the feet of Jesus and learn from his word and pour out our souls to him in prayer, even as we learn from the story of Mary and Martha. And yet, 
And yet, even as Christian ministers, our walks with the Lord get pushed to the margins of our schedules and of our lives. It gets pushed to the back burner. Or worse, over time, due to various circumstances, it gets neglected altogether. And we become like those pastors that we never thought we'd become. Proclaiming the riches and loveliness of Christ to others while offering our own hearts to other lovers. If we are honest with ourselves this morning, we all know what this is like. We all know what it feels like. We've all experienced this in some measure. And isn't this why Paul exhorted Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16 to keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. And then to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20.28, again, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Brothers, we can never stop paying attention to the condition of our own souls. You see, Paul knew, and more importantly, God knows, that ordained leaders in his church, under shepherds in his flock, are just as susceptible to spiritual drift and a vanishing walk with God as the next person, and perhaps even more susceptible because we are targets of the evil one. I love that, that scene in, in The Patriot where, uh, um, where the father, after losing his son, takes his sons, uh, Mel Gibson, they go up on the ridge, and he tells his sons, shoot the officers. Go for the guys on the horses. And the reason he says that is because he knows that once those who give him the commands are not there, there will be confusion, and they'll be able to defeat the enemy. And we know the devil has this plan to scatter and confuse the sheep by the falling of Christian ministers. We've seen the evidence of this over the past several years. Gospel ministers exchanging Christ for the destructive idols of sexual deviancy, power, influence, ambition, and celebrity. And a sobering thought this morning is that some who have fallen to these idols, brothers, have sat in these very chairs, in this very room, singing the psalms and the hymns with passion and joy and engaging in Christian fellowship on walks through this beautiful campus and hearing wonderful messages from God's word. Some who have been in this very fellowship have fallen into sin. At one point, they stopped walking with God. At one point, they gave their affections and their hearts to other loves. At one point, they believed the lie that Christ isn't enough. 
At one point they began worshiping God with their lips and their hearts were far from him. Their public ministry was very likely doctrinally sound and would have impressed any serious Presbyterian who walked into their church and heard their preaching. They may have even been impressive to the wider church through their writings and their speaking. But their private walk with God was non-existent. Dear brothers, could this be describing some of us in this room right now? If we can't take off the gloves, if we can't speak honestly in a context like this of intimate, joyful fellowship, which I think is what we all want, then where can we talk about it? Could there be some of us in this room who have stopped walking with God, stopped pursuing God privately? Could it be that there are those who have a solid, sound, public ministry and yet are living in secret sin, sins like Pornography or substance abuse or inappropriate relationships, and the list could go on. Could some of us in this room be described, as one writer puts it, as a man headed for disaster? Brothers, my prayer is that our time together this morning will challenge all of us, no matter where you are, whether it's totally in the ditch, having stopped walking with God or whether your walk with God is actually fairly strong, that we all would recognize this morning that there's nothing more important in our ministries than that we are caring for our own souls and walking with the Lord in fellowship and communion with Him, and that we have not stopped getting a view of our crucified and risen Savior, that we would be those who offer our hearts up to Him promptly and sincerely, Well, there are like 84 million ways to approach a subject like this, and uh, I have come up with one here. Many of you could have done a much better job. This is an an outline of some things to think about in connection with our walk with God. Uh, Let's look at it together. First of all, I want to talk about the subtleties and causes of spiritual drift for ministers. A pastor almost never drifts away from God overnight. It's incremental. It's slowly over the course of time. And it's interesting, too, that so many men that hit their 40s and go through these so-called midlife crises, it's interesting that what happens oftentimes is over time there is a, 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 a uh, turning of attention away from Christ and onto even ministry and, uh, and making something of themselves and uh, perhaps making a name for themselves and slowly... And, and perhaps even its worldly endeavors, slowly they stop walking with God. It happens over a period of time. It can happen over a period of, of five years, ten years, even twenty years in small incremental bits. And one way we see this is the disappearance of personal Bible reading and prayer. I know, I know, it's all going to sound like pietism, right? How dare we talk about quiet times? We talk about reform liturgy. It's a little more sophisticated. The diminishing of personal Bible reading and prayer is is a sad cause of, I believe, a loss of a walk with God among Christian ministers. Do you remember those early days as a Christian? 
I do. I remember actually being in a lot of trouble surrounding my own conversion, and so there was a lot going on in my mind, but I remember reading my Bible several hours a day. And I'm not exaggerating. Several hours a day, I would read my Bible. I would weep. I would pray. I would literally clutch my Bible when I went to bed at night. There was so much joy and love and newness and freshness in my heart when I began walking with God. I understand that life is different than when you're a student and you don't have loads of time to to spend uh, like that. But I want to ask you, do you remember those times when your heart was truly being offered up to the Lord? I don't think we want to brush that aside as merely the butterflies of new conversion. While there is a newness and a freshness to it, there's something very real and authentic to it as well. That we wanted to be with Jesus. We wanted to be with him more than anybody else. We wanted to read his word. We wanted to study his word. We wanted to know him and to walk with him. Well, over time, what happens is devotional Bible reading and prayer goes from a joyful, daily, non-negotiable discipline to an an irregular two to three times per week to a a once-in-a-while burden so that we can tell the person that asks us at church how our quiet times are going, that we're actually doing something, to finally a non-existent devotional life. Over time, we can become prayerless ministers who don't read our Bibles. Ministers who don't read their Bibles for personal spiritual nourishment. Spiritual decline may take a long time, but it happens. The evil one is in no rush to lead us off the cliff. He wants to dismantle our honest, vulnerable, personal time with the Lord. And abandoning one's personal time with the Lord is, I believe, one serious cause of spiritual drift for ministers. We get too spiritual. Think of it. We get too spiritual to spend time with God. What is that? We get too busy in ministry serving God to spend time with God. How can it be? Because it is our calling, our full-time job, as it were, to study and publicly preach and teach the Word of God, it's important for the health of our own souls to have a designated time alone with the Lord, to pour out our souls to Him in prayer, to meditate upon His Word as it relates to our own lives and not just the lives of our people, to connect with Him personally and not just in the context of public ministry. It's a time to bask in the light of our loving Heavenly Father, to throw ourselves in His Safe and in his loving arms to pray in sincerity with the psalmist. Oh Lord, see if there be any sinful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's a time to examine ourselves and to confess our sins and abide in Christ. It's a time to rest in his redeeming grace and to reflect upon his sovereign majesty in every occurrence of our lives and to rest in his and, and, and glory in his unspeakable loveliness. It's a time to stir up our zeal and our affections for God, to preach to our own souls the precious promises of the gospel and the beautiful imperatives of the law as a guide for our Christian lives. It was mentioned last night, we do need this daily recalibration 
regarding who we are and whose we are by spending time in the Word and in prayer. It's a daily time to put on the armor of God. Ephesians chapter 6, to put it on. Armor which God gives to us. And to remember that we fight not against flesh and blood, but against wicked and unseen principalities. It's a time of preparation for the day ahead. Because I've been in ministry long enough, I've been walking with the Lord long enough to recognize that I am no better than any other man when it comes to the dullness of my heart and the slowness of my mind towards God if I am not vigilant with my own soul. Thomas Watson once wrote, A Christian is better after prayer. He has gained more strength over sin. As a man by exercise gets strength. The heart after prayer keeps a tincture of holiness as the vessel favors and relishes the wine that is put into it. We had a wonderful prayer time earlier. Did you feel like getting up and slandering someone after that prayer time? Did you feel like clicking on that inappropriate picture? Did you, did envy and anger well up in your heart towards a fellow brother or someone in your church? I think probably not. And you know why? Because there's a tincture of holiness. As as Watson says, as the vessel favors and relishes the wine that is put into it. Some in our day call this a a devotional life, a daily time with God. They call it at best unnecessary and at worst legalism. Can you believe that there are those who call spending time with God a legalism? Even, Even without explaining that. Of course it's a legalism if you think you're earning your way to God by your personal time with God. Of course that's the case. We can't just call it a legalism. Unqualified. I call it an amazing privilege. And a joy. A privilege and a joy that I have often forsaken in my own life. Because of busyness. Deadlines. Wanting a little more sleep than I needed Isn't it intuitive that we spend time with those that we love? Our wives. It's one thing to tell my wife I love her. It's quite another to spend time with her. Same goes with my kids. You know, our Lord Jesus Christ himself carved out time to be alone with God. Mark 1.35, he went out to a quiet place to pray. So should we. Brothers, are we hungry for God? Do we ourselves long for the one we preach to our people? Do we love the Savior? Do we meditate upon him in our beds in the watches of the night? I wonder if you've heard the story of the man from Kansas City who was severely injured in an explosion. His face was badly disfigured. He lost his eyesight. He lost both hands. He was a newly converted Christian. And one of his greatest disappointments 
was that he could not read his Bible. Then he heard about a lady in England who read Braille with her lips. Hoping to do the same, he sent for some books of the Bible in Braille, and much to his dismay, he discovered that the nerve endings in his lips had been destroyed by the explosion. But one day, as he brought the Braille Bible up to try yet again, his tongue went against the raised Braille characters, and he thought, I can read the Bible with my tongue. At the time, this illustration was used by an author back in the mid-20th century. This man had read the Bible through four times with his tongue. Now, that's convicting to me. (laughs) That I have a good set of eyes. And I have hands to hold my Bible. And how slow I often am to read God's word and to meditate upon it. Oh, that we would hunger for God and his word like this man, like David in Psalm 63. Oh, that we would recognize the subtle ways that Satan and the world and our sinful flesh have deceived us into thinking that somehow we have matured beyond personal time with God. And that a strong devotional life is some kind of superfluous holdover from the pietist age. Brothers, the Bible calls us in Psalm 46.10 to be still and to know that I am God. Oh, how important it is that we as busy ministers be still. Matthew 6.6, when you pray, go into your room and pray to your heavenly Father in what? In secret. And your Father will reward you. Brothers, go boldly before the throne of grace. Christ has made a way for you to commune with God. So that's one important cause of spiritual drift, the disappearance of personal daily devotion before the Lord. There are others. More briefly, I want to mention uh, the second one is discouragement. Discouragement. It's already been mentioned that ministry can be discouraging. It can be discouraging. The, the elder who undermines your leadership uh, surprisingly, the, the hypercritical church member who critiques your preaching through an email and sends you some John Piper sermons to help you learn how to preach. <laughs> the officers who won't attend evening worship. Can I get an amen on that one? The dearth of encouragement and support from church members. Discouragement for many pastors leads to spiritual drift. Discouragement amidst the pressures of ministry can lead pastors to turn their attention away from the Lord to other things. Rather than seek the Lord for grace and strength, the discouraged minister will often look to other things to numb the pain of thorny ministry. It happens all the time. The minister begins to look to other things to bring him joy and contentment and even meaning. He begins to spend inordinate time on social media or Netflix or exercising at the gym or other athletic endeavors or traveling or focus on sports or, or worse, getting caught in a web of sin. We all recognize there are things in life, God's gifts, that we want to enjoy and we need time to, to just unplug and... and and relax, and yes, of course, but what I'm talking about are about 
They're moving away from a walk with God to being addicted to entertainment and social media and ways to numb the pain of discouragement and struggle. The problem starts, of course, when we allow our identity in Christ to be confused with our calling and success in ministry. So that when ministry becomes hard, we stray from God rather than walk with him more closely. Which is what every discouraged minister needs to do. Why so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. Do you know that God brings discouragements into your life to wean you off of the world? Not to drive you to it? Do you know there's thorniness in ministry to keep you humble, brother? So that you won't think too highly of yourself. He wants to break us and to humble us in the context of ministry. And to lead us into a sweeter relationship with him. Even as Paul said, everybody abandoned me, but the Lord was my friend. He was a friend that stuck closer than a brother. He wants us to teach us these lessons in ministry. Brothers, are you discouraged in ministry? Are things going much worse than you ever imagined? Are things not going like you thought they would when you were reading that Banner of Truth volume about the Welsh revival and thought you were going to bring that to the next call that you were going to? Are you tired of that church member giving you those murderous looks while you're preaching the love of Christ to them? Don't run to the world. Don't run to possessions. Don't run to entertainment or to sexual sin to numb the pain of discouragement and hardship in ministry. Go to Jesus. He's better. Walk with him as you go through your trials. He has not abandoned you. Find your joy in him. Jesus is a well of grace and strength that never runs dry. And we ought never forget that. Don't let a little discouragement quench your zeal for God. May it cause you to cling to him even tighter. And that's the point of our trials. The third subtle cause of spiritual drift that I have listed down there is patterns of duplicity. Patterns of duplicity. Those patterns in our lives where there is a disparity between what we present in our public persona and ministry and who we are in private or in our homes. Over time, under the busyness and stress of ministry, ministers can get more and more comfortable with patterns of duplicity, challenging his congregation to have family worship while he doesn't have it himself, preaching against slander and yet happy to slander others on many occasions. The minister's growing duplicity makes him uncomfortable with quiet time before the Lord. So he stops pursuing the Lord. He stops going to the prayer closet, stops reading scripture devotionally. His public ministry over time becomes merely a performance for his hearers and a means to status and a paycheck. When a minister does not guard his soul from patterns of duplicity, he eventually stops walking 
with God and opens himself up to a world of temptation and sin. He is like the proverb says, a city without walls. And the enemy can just rush in. The minister becomes a spiritual schizophrenic. A godly and respectable minister in public. Getting patted on the back. Nice sermon, pastor. Way to go. But he is something else altogether in private or at home. Often the minister's wife and children, they notice this duplicitous life. As they more and more see a difference between what he preaches and how he lives. He is kind to the members of his flock, but short-tempered with his wife and his children. His talks about the importance of Bible reading confuse the kids because they never see their dad reading his Bible at home. We cannot allow, brothers, we cannot allow the weeds of duplicity to grow in the gardens of our hearts. We must pull them up when they are small and relatively insignificant. For if they become big, they will utterly destroy any true spirituality. And we've seen this, haven't we? It's public ministry that one of our most esteemed reformed ministers in our tradition lived a life of utter duplicity and then took his own life in utter despair. We know now that it wasn't months It wasn't just a couple of years, it was for many years that he was living in utter duplicity. Carrying on extramarital affairs. All the while pastoring one of the most beloved congregations in our tradition. Speaking at high profile reformed conferences. Holding leadership and teaching positions and esteemed institutions, writing engaging and theological, theologically insightful books and articles for Table Talk and other periodicals. I was told that he was slated to speak on the subject of some temptation at a conference in a few weeks. Many of us have asked, how could this happen? How could this happen? Well, this is how it happened, brothers. The subtle, duplicitous behaviors turn into larger and more regular patterns of duplicity, which eventually turn into a life of utter duplicity and heinous sin. And at one point in this process, he stopped walking with God. And we can learn a lot from this. But I want to mention at least one. Confessional and theological orthodoxy is not synonymous with a healthy walk with God. Do not believe the lie that being theologically sound means you are walking strong with God. I believe we are in a day where we need to have our nose less in theology books and more against the pavement in prayer. I'm really not worried about anybody in this room being theologically hungry and sound. My concern for my own heart and for yours is that we would be men of God 
who offer up our hearts to God promptly and sincerely. Theological acumen doesn't immunize pastors from ministerial infidelity. Doctrinal precision doesn't inoculate ministers against sexual sin. There was no more theologically astute pastor in the world than this man I have been describing, and yet he lived a double life. When asked by a family member how he could carry on as he did for so many years, you know what he said? This is chilling. I relied on my natural gifts and intellect. This is the great temptation of Reformed ministers, brothers. To rely on natural gifts and intellect and not upon the Holy Spirit. To rely upon our natural gifts and intellect, and I'll add our theological acumen, and not upon the Lord, upon His Spirit, upon His strength and wisdom, is a death nail. Theological acumen is not synonymous with spiritual health or spiritual maturity, although it is certainly important in its context. It is not synonymous with it. Samuel Miller, in a lecture to theological students in the 1830s, he said this. Now, you talk about hard-hitting. It's to theological students in the 1830s. Quote, Men may hold the truth with intelligent accuracy and contend for it with earnestness without submitting to its power. He who receives with ever so much speculative exactness the genuine doctrines of the gospel, just as the Savior left them, cannot be said in the best sense of the word to follow him unless he give him his heart, unless he receive his truth in the love of it. Unless he unfeignedly yield to him his love and confidence as his great high priest and king, as well as his prophet, that gospel minister then who truly follows Christ is not only sound in the faith, but also a converted man, a cordial, devoted, experimental Christian, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, who speaks that which he knows. And testifies that which he has experienced. Who loves his master and his work above all things. And who accounts it his highest honor to be like Christ. And his meat and drink to do his will. He rejects the aspirings of carnal ambition. He is willing to learn of him who is meek and lowly of heart. And to be himself nothing. That Christ may be all and all. The glory of Christ is the great end. For which he lives. End quote. Brothers, may we not be those men who the Lord describes as men who honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In his well known book, The Reformed Pastor, Richard Baxter writes this quote, O sirs, how many men have preached Christ and yet have perished for want of saving interest in him? How many who are now in hell have told their people of the torments of hell and warned them to escape from it? How many have preached of the wrath of God against sinners who are now enduring it? 
Oh, what sadder case can there be in the world than for a man who made it his very trade and calling to proclaim salvation and to help others to heaven, yet after all to be himself shut out? Alas, that we should have so many books in our libraries which tell us the way to heaven, that we should spend so many years in reading these books and studying the doctrine of eternal life, and after all this, to miss it. That we should preach so many sermons of damnation and yet fall into it. And all because we preach so many sermons of Christ while we neglected him. The fourth thing we see here very quickly is overconnectivity. I don't want to say a lot about this except to say I've started reading a new book by Tony Reinke. It's it's called uh, 12 Ways the Cell Phone is Changing Your Life or something like that. And in the opening paragraph, he says, you will check your cell phone in the coming year over 85,000 times. And at least three times before you're done reading this chapter. <laughs> Brothers, we are a distracted generation. And by the way, we are the first generation really to deal with the kinds of things we're dealing with in terms of cell phones and, and hyper-connectivity. We're, we're in, the, in the flood of this and just trying to figure out how to deal with it. But one thing we do know, brothers, is that there is a lot of distraction in the world and we must be careful not to be distracted out of a walk with God. Reinke writes, It's no wonder we habitually grab our phones first thing in the morning, not only to turn off our alarms, but also to check email and social media in a half-conscious state of sleep inertia before our groggy eyes can fully open. We need to manage our distractions wisely. We need to redeem the time and not to waste time. Oh, that we would not be ministers who waste time. Time. Can I just read you a quote by Samuel Miller again from his sermon called The Sacred Office? Quote, how deeply to be pitied is that minister who finds hours to waste in idleness or on trifles when the world is dying around him. And when he is surrounded not only with opportunities but with importunate calls to labor for the temporal and eternal welfare of his fellow man. Oh, that we wouldn't be time wasters. The iPhone came into existence only in 2007. Can you believe that? It seems like it's been around for 200 years. It's been around for a decade. And it controls our lives oftentimes. We need to think hard about these matters that we do not distract ourselves out of a walk with God. And Next, we have ungodly ambition. I won't say much about this except to say... Let us not be more interested in public acclaim than in walking with God. So much self-promotion, so much self-promotion online. It is pathetic. It is so pathetic. We are so pathetic. I, a friend of mine, I hope he doesn't listen to this, but I, I noticed on his social media that he had a picture of his invitation from Table Talk. And said something like, I'm writing, I'm laboring, writing this article for Table Talk this month, and you know, pray for me. Or, Seriously, is that really that necessary? 
We need to be careful about selfish ambition. I once asked a minister several years ago who is now out of the ministry, if you could do anything in the world you'd want to do, what would it be? And he was a pastor of a church. He said, I'd like to speak at conferences and write books. I was grieved at his answer. Seriously? There was one man who stood behind this very pulpit and delivered a message several years ago here at Twin Lakes and he's fell into to sin and, and and somebody asked him what can you teach us about what happened to you when you fell into this indiscretion he said at one point I stopped feeling Jesus which I think is code for I stopped walking with and pursuing Christ. Brothers, we need to humble ourselves. If we're going to be ambitious, it must be ambition for the Lord. We must be God's men. We must not be self-promoters. The prideful pastor jettisons his simple time alone with the Lord. He's become too busy for it. He thinks the kingdom of God is dependent upon his busyness. The prideful pastor is hardened to his own need for the body of Christ and the ministry of others. This causes detriment to our walk with God. The next thing is isolation. The minister is a member of the body of Christ. He is not to live in isolation. He needs the church as much as anyone else. We get hurt. We get dinged. We get criticized, we get critiqued, we get chewed out, and each time that happens, if we're not careful, our heart can get more and more closed. Perhaps a friend betrays you. Perhaps a fellow minister who is a good friend betrays you. Your heart closes up even more. And soon you're an isolated man. You hold everybody at arm's length. No one feels like they know you. It's because they don't. And you isolate yourself. And this is so dangerous because our personal walk with God, brothers, is meant to be lived in community with fellow brothers. This is why this GRN Twin Lakes partnership on these company of pastors groups I think is a wonderful idea. To bear our souls to one another. If you don't have friends in ministry like that, you need them. You need to pursue them. We think, people just don't get us. You know, I'm a minister. Nobody gets me, so I'm just not going to have any friends. That's not the way we need to go at it. Be humble. Recognize your need for others. Even if you've been hurt a thousand times, continue to be vulnerable and open to Christian friendships and encouragement. Don't allow the poison of cynicism to rule your heart. God will use these things as an agent to sanctify you. And can I say that so many of these things that we've been talking about and a loss of a walk with God can lead to sexual sin. Perhaps you know this already, I'm sure you do, but think about the most spiritual man in the Bible. Who would you think of? David. Well, Jesus, I know. David, the most spiritual man in the Bible. We have the strongest man in the Bible is who? Samson. The wisest man in the Bible is Solomon. 
they all fell to sexual sin. A man of extraordinary spirituality, a man of extraordinary strength physically, a man of profound wisdom. They all were captured by sexual indiscretion, sin. Do we really think that any of us in this room are the most spiritual or strongest? Maybe Aaron's the strongest. Where's Aaron? See those biceps? Do any of us think we're the wisest? We are not beyond these things, brothers. We need to walk with God. Very quickly, a couple of exhortations for walking with God as Christian ministers. I'll go quickly. We need to prioritize and actively cultivate our personal walks with God. We need to make room in our daily schedule to foster and stir up our love and devotion to Christ. We can't be too busy to walk with God. We we, we don't want to, to get too busy to recognize the beauty and the glory. We heard it unpacked last night so beautifully by Ian Hamilton, this uh, gaze afresh upon the beauty and the glory of the pre-incarnate Christ, and of course the incarnate Christ and the exalted Christ. We, we don't want to forget about that. I, I, I was thinking about this in the context of where I live in the South Carolina Low Country. Um, I could talk to you about it all day. I love where I live. I love the context in which I live. It's a place of extraordinary beauty. The stunning beaches, the expansive marsh views, the picturesque cobblestone streets and colonial architecture, the amazing wildlife and the, the salty sea air. Uh, I hope I've convinced you to come on your next vacation there now. The beauty is everywhere. Everywhere, But you know there are people that I meet all the time, and even in my own congregation, that they, they've been there so long, guess what they've done? They've forgotten about the beauty. They no longer see it. They drive past it. They walk past it all the time, and they don't recognize the beauty that is around them. And is it possible for us in Christian ministry to declare the glory and the majesty and the beauty of God without actually seeing it and appreciating it and experiencing it? Yes, it is possible. And that's why we need to spend time with God. We can go to a place where we stop noticing the one we preach. We need to reacquaint ourselves with God. Spend time with him in personal devotion. This takes discipline and not just goodwill and good intentions. So brothers, make a plan. Make a plan if you don't have one. Choose a place. Choose a favorite chair. Choose a a place where you're going to spend time with God and change it up. Don't think you're unspiritual if you're doing something different than, uh, than some certain Bible reading plan by McShane or something. Sorry, Stephen. Change it up. We're human. We need to change things up. Maybe you've been doing a certain plan for a while. It's getting a little stale. Change it up. I just bought that new seven-volume ESV Reader's Bible. It's been wonderful. It's beautifully produced. It's, it's, it, the, 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 the new font is beautiful, and there's no verses in there, and it's just a new kind of reading experience. It's been wonderful for my personal time with the Lord. Change it up. And then I want to encourage you to, to read biography. Always read Biography All the time, have a biography you're reading. It is such a refreshment and encouragement to the soul. And with a strong walk with God, the minister possesses a peculiar freedom, joy, and power in his public ministry. 
he experiences and even deeply feels that which he proclaims through word and sacrament. With it, with this walk, the gospel is not just a collection of important ideas, but truth that burns in his heart and leads him personally to communion with God in private and public worship. He cherishes in private the God that he preaches in public. I want to move on quickly to number two. Foster Lord's Day piety and abide in Christ as the means of grace. Brothers, very quickly, don't, don't make the mistake of just administering the means of grace on the Lord's Day. Drink deeply of them yourself. This is one of the greatest sort of problems among, I think, young ministers especially. And part of it is maybe a little nerviness in leading worship and preaching. It's all new and they're trying to do things right and proper. And I understand all of that. But don't make the mistake of thinking that Lord's Day worship is just for them and not for you. Brothers, don't make the mistake of not sitting under your own preaching. And your own administration of the sacraments. And worshiping and delighting and adoring and and receiving all that is being offered in those means while you yourself are administering them. It's for you. And this is actively abiding in Christ. If you are not feeding in your own services, you will dry up. Think about it. You are in your own services like most of the time. Right? I had one person recently who, who, who we, we actually had, had interviewed, and they said, what do you think about having one Sunday off a month? <laughs> you kidding me? We just don't do that. That's, that's too often. We need time off, but you know, the, real, the realization is we will rarely be sitting under other people's preaching throughout the year in the context of a Lord's Day worship service, just on vacation from time to time. Things like this. And so we need to learn to sit under our own proclamation of the gospel, to feed on it, to be nourished by it as we declare God's truth. Samuel Miller again said, Ministers then, while they undertake to teach others, ought ever to place themselves and to feel as humble learners at the feet of him whose they are and whom they serve. Thirdly, this is very practical. Plan short and long seasons of rest. I must confess I've not always been good at this. I've gotten better at it, but I'm still working on it. But it's so important. We need rest. Uh, Ross Hodges, our associate pastor, and I, we've read through a, a book by um, Christopher Ash on, on burnout, and it was so helpful. We read it out loud together in our, in our staff meetings and one thing that was really impressed upon me was, you know, as so many have experienced burnout and, and discouragement in ministry, they didn't realize, and I haven't realized this point, that really it's pride that often causes us not to rest as we ought. We think God needs us, we're indispensable. I understand there are times in this life of a church where maybe you need to be around a lot more than, than less, but 
I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the need for regular, short-term and long-term rest. And by the way, brothers, our wives need rest. Our wives need vacation. I spoke with a minister a couple of weeks ago at lunch. He said he had not taken a, a vacation for a year. Another minister called me to, to get some thoughts on some things from down in Florida. He said, I can't go on vacation. I just can't do it. I can't leave the church. And he hadn't been on vacation in, a, in months and months. We think God needs us. Everyone needs us. I can't slow down. Wrong. God doesn't need you. Doesn't need me. Doesn't need Twin Lakes Fellowship. So go for a walk. Go for a walk in the next couple of days and learn what it means to go for a walk. And just look around. Get outside. Get away from the TV. Get, a, get outside and, 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 and hear the sounds and smell the smells and see the activity of nature. All of this is meant to be therapeutic, I believe. I read a biography on John Stott a few years ago, and he's into bird watching, right? So and I read that a few years ago. I thought, what in the world is this? <laughs> bird watching? Yeah, he's an old man. That makes sense. So now, the other day, my son, he likes to give me a hard time, which I appreciate. Uh, we were at dinner, we were at lunch, and he said some, someone was bringing up things that we like to do, and my dad, uh, and uh, Hans said, well, my dad likes to go out on the porch and watch birds. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I actually do like to do that. I, it's one, it's so peaceful. It's a, be still. And to go for longer seasons of rest. Ask your session for a sabbatical if you've not had one. Shame on them if you've been in ministry for over seven years, seven years and have never had a sabbatical. Shame on your, she- your session. Have someone else tell them that, not you. <laughs> but you need to take a sabbatical. Fourthly, cultivate strong ministerial friendships. We've talked about that already. And fifthly, remember who you are and whose you are. Calvin could offer his heart to Christ promptly and sincerely because his identity was chiefly in Christ and he knew he belonged to Christ. Brothers, the most important thing about you is not your ministry, not your fancy education, not your social media following, not your publishing endeavors, not the number of people that hear you preach. It's that you are loved by God. And he wants to walk with you. You are loved by God. And he wants to walk with you. By his grace, let us offer our hearts up to God promptly and sincerely. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this this time where we could come before you honestly and say, Lord, we have drifted at times. Perhaps some have have fallen into a ditch. We pray, Lord, that you would renew our hearts as we delight ourselves in the person and work of your Son, as we glory in his riches, as we receive your grace through the means that you have ordained for our 
for the health of our souls and our churches, that we would spend time with you, that we would be still and know that you are God, that we would take time and be intentional about this. And would you receive all the glory and may our ministries evidence the fact that we are walking with you. And we pray in Jesus' name.